Welcome to the Immigration Hour. It's great to be with you this week. This is your host, Charles Cook. Uh, we have had, I mean, what can you call it? An eventful week? Is that is that what this last week was? Um, you know, uh, you have to go back. We have a little time travel today. We have to go back about, mm, it's about three weeks or so, somewhere around June 21st. So a little bit before, actually, it's the day before. Um, President Trump is announcing his re-election campaign uh, before his uh, faithful base in Florida. Let's call him his faithful base. Oddly enough, that was also the first day of the con- of the annual conference of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, also in Orlando. Uh, I don't know if we had any members attend that uh, little little chat with the president, but I doubt it. So right before the day before, uh, he says this in a tweet: "Quote next week." ICE will begin the process of removing the millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their way into the United States. They will be removed as fast as they come in. Close quote. President went on to blame congressional Democrats for the refugee crisis on the southern border, although nothing happened, adding that if they fix what he called loopholes, quote loopholes, in the asylum laws, the border crisis will end quickly. You know, so I want to set a little bit of time talking about this tweet and what it led to. Well, of course, immediately people began freaking out because apparently there are some people in the United States who still believe what Trump says. Um, I don't know how they believe that since he lies about literally everything. And I'm using the word literally, literally. I mean, he lies about everything. In fact, if you took the position that everything he said was a lie and were shocked when he told the truth, then you'd be a more believable human being. So he lied about this. First of all, let's parse this. Was ICE the following week going to begin anything? Unclear if they were. Um, Two, were they ever going to remove millions of people? No, ICE simply does not have the physical capability of doing that. Uh, Three, uh, did people find themselves illicitly, no, many came legitimately and overstayed their visas or applied for asylum. And four, will they be removed as fast as they come in? Not currently. They were under Obama because he had reduced the number of people coming into the country to a mere trickle. Uh, in comparison to the past, but Trump has somehow uh, opened the floodgates by his really terrible foreign policy and immigration policies. So basically everything in that suite was a lie, uh, but people got very riled up about it. People began to say, you know, we have got to be really concerned about uh, how, uh, how ICE is going to start showing people's houses how they, uh, how they may start, you know, rounding people up on the street. And immigration lawyers, we began to tell people, you need to relax. This is not going to happen like this. The Trump administration, has, like the Obama administration, had no capability of deporting everybody. Uh, and we've seen over the first two and a half years, and yes, it's been two and a half years, of the Trump administration, that they have always taken the easy path. ICE is like any other federal government employee. They're going to follow the path of least resistance. So they're going to go to the low-hanging fruit. The vast majority of people that end up in ICE custody 
do not end up in ICE custody because ICE is going out and aggressively looking for people. And the vast majority of people that ICE has deported are not because ICE is out literally rounding people up. No, they are because people are placed into their hands by either local law enforcement or by the immigration courts themselves. Uh, so when you have, for example, here in Georgia, three massive detention centers that are completely full, many of them are full either because people at the border showed up seeking asylum or because the individuals themselves were arrested for generally some minor offense, um, frequently driving without a license here in Georgia, what we affectionately call DWH, driving while Hispanic. And once they're in ICE custody, then it becomes much easier for ICE to coerce them or to simply have a process where people give up or they're ultimately forced to leave the United States. That's where a big chunk of ICE's numbers come from and came from during the Obama administration as well. It's not from going out and picking up millions of people. In fact, let's look at the apparatus of ICE before we get into this whole myth of picking people up. Uh, ICE does not have an unlimited number of staffers. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, ICE has um, uh, a limited budget with which both to uh, arrest and detain people. Right now, uh, the ERO, and this is the uh, removal office of, of ICE. So ICE is divided into uh, uh, what they call ERO, Enforcement and Removal Operations, and HSI. Take HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. They're the guys doing the good work of uh, against sex trafficking and fraud and document fraud and um, employer fraud. They do, they do all that good stuff. ERO are um, the officers who deport people. There are 8,500, 8,500 people working in the ERO what they call directorate of ICE. 6,100 of them are deportation officers. And there are 750 enforcement removal, quote, assistants uh, in 24 field offices in the United States. So 6,100 officers. On any given day, uh, there are only, what, about two-thirds of them working because of shifts and... Uh, staffing and vacation. So maybe on a good day, they have 5,000 people among uh, 24 offices, 58. So let's say on average, 100 to 200 officers per state. Some states have more, some states have less. So if they're going to go out and do effective removal operations, and let's say the Atlanta office has 100 ERO officers on duty on a particular day, what they're not counting is how many of those officers are actually not doing the field work. They're actually in jails. Uh, they're doing what are called uh, reports uh, or orders of supervision. Uh, they are interviewing uh, detainees for creation of uh, notices to appear. So in actuality, let's cut that number in half. So maybe there are 40 to 50 officers who might be able to go out on any given day uh, and do the job of ICE officing. Keep, you know, this because these include supervisors too. They're not going to be out in the field. So let's say 40 guys, 40, 40 men and women in Atlanta out looking for what? 
thousands of people. Uh, so when you look at the actual numbers of how this works, there is simply a limited number of ICE officers to carry out the work of removal. And let's say there are, you know, 6,000 deportation officers effectively doing deportation. There are currently upwards of 900,000 people with final orders of removal. Well, if each of those officers every day arrested one person, we could deport all 900,000 people in a little while. I'm not good at math, but let's say um, 150 days. Well, that's, that's not going to happen because once you detain somebody who you're deporting, you don't bring them to the airport and deport them. That's not how this works. Uh, you actually have to contact their consulate, get them a travel document, uh, arrange a flight, or in the case of Mexico, a bus ticket. Uh, those take weeks. Um, and if your jails are already full of people that are waiting for their hearings because you're not giving bond, or people waiting for removal themselves, you have no place to put those people. So you cannot go out on any given day and arrest 40 people or 100 people a day uh, because it's not going to happen. Now, how else do they arrest people? Well, let's say they go out and they're going to target somebody. Say, we want to go after this person. They have a final order of removal. They didn't show up for their hearing. They came from Central America uh, you know, two years ago. All right, what address do you have for them? Well, the address they gave. Okay. Uh, who signed for them to, uh, to leave, um, uh, to leave uh, custody? Okay, let's, go to the, let's look that person up. And they go through social media. They use uh, uh, LexisNexis, which they have an unlimited contract with to do background checks, system for, uh, previously known as ChoicePoint. And uh, they can get data and information for people. And then they, uh, they don't just go to the house at that point. They have to make sure the person lives there, so they have to stake it out. ICE does not have a network of, you know, a thousand cars. They're not, they're not the New York City Police Department. They use their personal vehicles. Uh, and um, at uh, that point, they've waited a couple of days to see if the person lives there. Then they gather their forces, and four or five or six agents go up in the morning, uh, they generally don't knock doors anymore because knocking doors is ineffective. So they wait outside for the person to leave. They approach the person, identify themselves, and they ask the person's name. And people are learning. They don't have to answer those questions. Their ICE is not the police. They, they don't have to identify themselves to ICE. Uh, we don't live within 100 miles of the border here in Atlanta, so there's no requirement they do so. Um, and so as people learn their rights, they're less and less effective in detaining people. Uh, there is a terrific uh, story in New York out of the New York Times uh, that uh, people simply over the weekend just didn't answer their door or refused to come forward. There's a great audio uh, video of a young woman uh, telling ICE they're not going to come out and talk to them. Uh, and neighbors started taking video of ICE trying to uh, detain you know, somebody in an apartment and ICE ended up leaving. Now, I'm not going to, I mean, I don't do ICE's job. My job is not to deport people. My, people. my job is to help people remain in the United States. I'm an immigration lawyer. I advocate for justice. Um, but there are people that get deported every day because they have, they've exhausted their rights. Uh, they've exhausted our laws, and they're required to leave. And that's the law. And ICE's job is important. Uh, there are also people that should be deported that uh, have not earned the right to remain in the United States. Uh, but uh, focusing on the low-hanging fruit, as ICE does, uh, generally means that uh, uh, we're going to have uh, most people uh, that they pick up, are in fact, going to be just moms and dads. 
uh, with kids, some with U.S. citizen kids, whose absence will be felt, strongly felt by those in their community. So I'll take a step back here. Trump has, on June 21st, June 20th, tweeted out this tweet. Uh, Nancy, supposedly, calls Don, and uh, they agree they're going to hold off until after July 4th. We don't, we don't want to deport people before they celebrate the international holiday. Um, and then after July 4th, President tweets again, okay, ICE is going to do their job next week. Uh, so, you know, Sunday comes along, and uh, ICE, uh, lots of rumors going around. We had heard uh, from uh, certain officials that ICE had rented vans uh, in Atlanta and other places. Um, and it turns out uh, that ICE apparently decided to do nothing outside their normal enforcement activities, um, which are finding the low-hanging fruit, looking for the easy people to find, questioning people they do pick up and those around them for what their status is and what they believe, uh, what, what, they, uh, what their name is and what their nationality is. And as a result, the numbers of people that ICE picked up were basically hardly any. Uh, when I was interviewed on uh, Friday night, um, and a, a, a reporter asked me, well, how many people do you think you're going to pick up? I said, I'd be shocked, shocked if more than a few hundred people in the whole country get picked up. I just, I just don't see it happening. They, they, again, you have to look at the resources. You have to look at the timing. You have to look at um, capabilities uh, as well as the tension space. And when you put all that stuff together, it just does not equal a lot of people. So the president's tweet was nothing but a lie. Um, it was nonsensical. Uh, and uh, what, what it really was um, is, uh, more than anything else, is a, is a re-election tweet. Keep in mind, Trump, Trump, <laughs> Trump used immigration as his bully pulpit uh, in announcing his candidacy and throughout his campaign uh, to go to election by stoking fears in the population during a time when we had very little illegal immigration. We had net, uh, in fact, we had net out migration of undocumented immigrants. And it was only after he became president that people began coming again because of both the policies that he created in Central America and around the world, as well as threats to build a wall, which we all knew was never going to get built, by which people decided I better get in before that wall is built. So thousands of people have come since then at numbers we haven't seen in a decade, which really must embarrass Trump because uh, Obama was just way better at, at stopping illegal immigration and deporting people than he was. Uh, he, Obama will never lose the title of deporter-in-chief. And as, but, but he's, and he did this again during the midterms when he, we round, when he really just, Pounded on illegal immigration and the caravan. You never hear about caravans anymore, do you? No, pounded on the caravans are coming the day before the election. And Trump got trounced, trounced in the election. But Trump only knows and only has one pony. And that pony is immigration. So he's going to ride this pony uh, all the way into the next election. And so we are just seeing the beginnings, the very beginnings of uh, the Trump re-election campaign as they put on immigration. Now, getting back, uh, getting back to the to the raids and uh, uh, really what what this means and what happened. 
what we saw uh, as part of this is nothing short of an economic disaster. We're going to take our first break here on the immigration. Now we're talking more about the economic impact, societal impact of, uh, of these tweets and threats. We'll be back in, uh, for you, just a matter of seconds, for being a couple of minutes uh, on the Immigration Hour. Hour. Uh, it's great to be with you. Again, your host, Charles Cook here, Cook Baxter Immigration. If you have any questions or comments, you're welcome to uh, post them on our uh, Twitter page. We have, we have Twitter um, at ccook, at uh, C-K-U-C-K. I know my own name. Uh, and uh, we also have a, uh, a Twitter um handle for the Immigration Hour uh, on, uh, on the Internet. Uh, and um, uh, you can look that up. I think I'm pretty sure that's uh, at, uh, at, uh, um, uh, at the Immigration Hour. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. It's called The M Hour, at The M Hour, the T-H-E-I-M-M-H-O-U-R. Uh, you can follow our posts there. We post our shows there. And uh, uh, more than happy to... Uh, 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 have you post there, but also at uh, C. Cook and of course Cook Baxter uh, on any comments you have on our show. You can also email me at C. Cook uh, or Chuck at immigration.net. Either one is just fine. Uh, but let's, uh, uh, you know, it's funny how the hysteria didn't match the, the what actually happened. Uh, again, the press picked up on a story. Oh, this is a big story. This is a big deal. Trump's going to do this. And as much as you talk to reporters and say, you know, don't buy into this really amazing stuff uh, that ICE is going to do. They don't have that kind of capability. Uh, and uh, what we found is, you know, around the country, not a lot going on. Uh, mostly rumors and hysteria. Uh, ICE is going to keep doing operations. Um, but more than uh, – uh, it, it's funny because on Monday, the president, he, he said uh, the, the many people were taking out on Sunday – uh, no. Uh, many were felons. Uh, no. Many were convicted of crimes. Uh, no. Many, many were taking on Sunday. You just didn't know about it because they did it in secret? And, uh, you know, uh, here's what Trump said. This is great. You didn't see a lot of it. He said he'd spoken to the head of ICE and it was a very successful day, but you didn't see a lot of it. I'm not sure they should be telling you but it was a lot. No, no, no. It, it, it really wasn't a lot. Uh, it was, you know what it was? It was smoke and mirrors. It was absolutely smoke and mirrors. That's what it really was. Now, let's talk about what the actual impact of this was, the actual uh, result, which was a massive economic and societal impact. Uh, in Miami, there's a big Tropicana flea market uh, in the Alapata neighborhood. Usually crazy on a Sunday. As you know, it's a big, big outdoor flea market. No, unusually quiet. People are in hiding. Uh, people out there, people who work there, and they were the only people. Their clients were not there. They were just not there. Um, and, uh, you know, people were worried that needn't be worried. People with papers were worried. People, kids were worried about their parents. I said, just, you know, relax. It's not going to happen. Uh, and as a result, people, uh, for example, this woman, Mar Margot Perez, a Costa Rican immigrant, runs a clothing and fabric shop at the Tropicana Flea Market. She pays two fifty a week for her space in the market. Everything's empty. Everything. So uh, she lost... Uh, 
she lost $300 just by going to work because Trump decided to tweet about something that ICE was wildly incapable of carrying out. Uh, one guy called it smoke and mirrors, una cortina de humo, una cortina de humo. Um, and really, psychological pressure, that's, and that's really, it's, you know, it's another word for psychological prayer is terror, terrorizing. So terrorizing people about this. Now, people will say, well, when he does it again, uh, well, we'll know. You know, it'll be like the, you know, uh, chicken little and the sky is falling. Nobody's going to believe her until the sky actually falls. You know, up, up until there is a massive restructuring of ICE and better management of the agency, uh, there's no way they can do what, what the president wants them to do. It's just a physical impossibility. Now, let's also talk about the other impact. It was a kind of a familial and societal impact. Uh, Spanish-speaking churches were empty in the metro Atlanta area compared to their normal attendance. Lots of people simply didn't go to church. Uh, on uh, Friday evening, I, uh, I actually, Thursday evening, I spoke at a Catholic church here in Atlanta, St. Thomas, and it was full, 300 people. Uh, were there to listen to what, what their rights were and what they could do and to get their questions answered. Um, and on Sunday, it was very quiet. Didn't have 300 people showing up for Spanish Mass uh, because people were just saying, you know what, I'm going to play my cards close to the vest and just not take any chance at all. So you have this societal impact that comes from this type of messaging. And if you think that's accidental on the part of the president or his minions, you're wrong. It's, it's not accidental. Uh, not at all. Um, and uh, it is actually quite intentional uh, for, for this stuff to be happening. Um, and uh, I, I, just found, uh, I just found it very fascinating uh, that we've got uh, uh, so many government officials that uh, are either doing one of two things. They're, they're lying about what these were, and that falls mostly in the Ken Cusinelli camp. And they're, the others are just avoiding comment or talking privately to reporters off the record to say this was just a joke. This is, this is nothing that's going on. Um, I mean, I know I was talking to a reporter about her off-the-record comments with an official here in an ICE office, and it was quite clear they never really had any intention at all of having massive raids anywhere and were just going about their normal, normal business. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that was fascinating for me uh, was how the USCIS acting director, uh, perhaps the least qualified human being on the planet to run USCIS, has been all over the news, especially Fox News, uh, about these raids. Uh, this, is, this is what's really fascinating because Cuccinelli has nothing to do with immigration enforcement. Nothing. He has nothing to do with the tension. So he's, he's on the show saying uh, people that criticize the tension don't know what they're talking about. Uh, there's loopholes in the asylum process you could drive a truck through. Um, ICE is going to be everywhere looking for people. The facilities are, are humane and wonderful. Cuccinelli, really, uh, at the least qualified human being to run USCIS. 
is out there talking about another government agency's operations over which he has no control, none, or input, or say so. And you have to wonder, is he trying to run uh, to be the new DHS guy? Is he, what else is he running for? Because he has zero immigration experience, zero whatsoever. He is a failed gubernatorial candidate from what is now a blue state. Um, so I, Cushinell, of course, as many of our listeners know, will never be confirmed to be USCIS director. Never. Ever. And that, is, and that actually goes back to Republican Party politics because Cuccinelli supported four years, uh, six years ago, the, um, uh, the primary uh, opponent to uh, Mitch McConnell and to many other sitting Republican senators. Uh, so there is zero, zero chance, zero chance he ever has any vote on the Senate floor to become U.S. CIS director. Um, he's also illegally appointed, as many people know, to be acting director because he didn't work at the agency for 90 days prior to being named acting director. So they're talking about, and this is what's interesting, this guy's talking about loopholes. And the only reason he is sitting where he is sitting is because of a loophole. He was actually hired by the agency when he was named as acting director, but not as acting director. He was hired in another role which he will serve in for 90 days and then be actually appointed to be acting director to meet the standard, to meet the statements of the, the, of, of the, of the reg, which is why you haven't seen any policy memos with his signature on it because if he signs as acting director, that would be illegal. So he's not actually the acting USCIS director as Fox News is wont to point out. Uh, he is a USCIS employee hoping to be USCIS director 91 days after he started working there. Uh, so let's, you know, let's be clear about who, who Mr. Cusinelli is. Um, at the end of the day, he is uh, a, 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 a pimple on the butt of a flea uh, and will end up in the ash heap of history. Uh, however, we will be cleaning up many of the policies that I'm sure he will want to implement uh, going forward in a way that probably will take us uh, well into the next presidency uh, to take care of. Um, now, uh, as far as going, just going back to these raids um, uh, and Cuccinelli, he was asked on uh, a State of the Union uh, this weekend um, that uh, he didn't know how many people had been arrested on Sunday because the acting director of ICE hadn't told him. Asked why he didn't have details, Cuccinelli said, quote, Presumably because operational details are kept within the agency excluded, excluding the operation as they should be. Then why is he talking about it? Why is he talking about it? I love he's talking about the compassionate and loyal ICE agents who are just doing their job. Um, does that include the guy who flipped off the camera in Atlanta uh, to the uh, kid who refused to get out of his car and refused to answer his questions? Oh, you must see that video. Go to Maria, go to Mundo Hispanico and you'll see that video. Um, and uh, it is uh, truly interesting to me to see uh, how ultimately this whole setup uh, by the Trump administration perhaps is broader than we think in the context of why we're talking about this today. We know that uh, the Trump administration intentionally cut off aid to Central American countries. Um, 
And that cutting off of that aid, which had been created by the Obama, and programs created by the Obama administration, had stemmed the flow of many migrants fleeing those countries, Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. By cutting off that age, was, it was literally a certainty that people would come again. So by cutting off the age, Trump knew it would create a, quote, crisis at the southern border. That's why that happened. He knew that advocating for a wall and talking about it, you know, you haven't heard about the wall recently. Advocating for that wall has created a demand that wasn't there before because people felt, oh, I better get in while I can. And so Trump himself and his agencies have created the very crisis that they're now using to try to limit legal immigration and legal asylum claims to the United States. Now, isn't that fascinating? They have created the crisis that they are now trying to use both for re-election purposes and to advocate for a much more limited asylum system and legal immigration system in the United States. These people are mostly not stupid. They know how to do what they're doing, and they know exactly what they are doing. It is the poor pawns like CBP agents and ICE agents that are kind of stuck in this crazy situation where they didn't like the last president, but they had priorities which made their job easier. They love this guy, but their job is much more difficult uh, and, and less effective as the numbers of people that Trump is deporting uh, over the last uh, two and a half years is clearly showing up. Um, and uh, it is uh, maybe these guys will come to the actual you know, decision-making process about what's really good. And I'm going to give you a great example um, for deportations. Uh, Obama routinely, starting in 09, but really in 08, he had about 380. In 09, 390, in, in 10, 395, 11, 399, uh, 12, 405, uh, 13, 340, uh, 14, 310. And then he changed in 2014 and, and reduced numbers dramatically. And we saw, f- and in most of those middle years, Obama was mostly, de- was more percentage wise, deporting quote, convicted criminals. Um, by 2016, he was actually deporting fewer convicted criminals and more people, but the overall numbers were at their lowest numbers in a while. Trump, uh, in uh, 18 and 19, uh, got to 250 and 280 and had been nowhere near Obama's numbers and um, still are deporting less than half the people as, quote, convicted criminals from the United States. Um, it is uh, <coughs> going to be interesting to see uh, how Trump sells his lesser enforcement. Uh, and by the way, when they talk about convicted criminals, I know everybody thinks terrible people, right? But most of them have um, uh, uh, things like uh, traffic violations, uh, which in Georgia are, is a criminal offense, it's a misdemeanor. Maybe they have a DUI, or maybe they have a domestic violence, all of which are serious, but which we forgive people for all the time. Uh, and uh, they, these are not terrible people. Uh, generally, they're people that made a single mistake that served no jail time. And in fact, you look at the average jail time 
that most of these people serve, you would find that it's virtually none. And a lot of them are just picked up on probation. Again, low-hanging fruit. Uh, let's take our next break here on the Immigration Hour. We're going to come back. I want to talk about the new asylum regs uh, that go into effect today. Uh, and they're quite illegality. We'll be back here in just a second on the Immigration Hour. Right here, uh, you didn't leave. Uh, I did. Um, I had to pull up the reg because um, I really want to. I want to look at this today. They published in the Federal Register an interim final rule, uh, which means it goes into effect immediately, but it was created without comment uh, as part of um, uh, the Trump administration desire to. Uh, limit the uh, the way that we uh, 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 look at uh, uh, asylum regulations and lawmaking. Now, by the way, this is the same administration that um, complained about the Imperial Obama administration um, and uh, how uh, they just created laws out of whole cloth. What's stunning about this regulation? is that it comes on the heels on Friday of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals decision blocking the Trump administration rules that would allow employers to deny workers insurance coverage due to religious or moral objections. Um, and why is this important? Well, why did the Court of Appeals uh, rule that... Um, uh, the decision um, uh, uh, which said this, this particular rule is uh, illegal, uh, why did it do that? I mean, what was the particular reason uh, that uh, it was um, uh, found to be uh, unconstitutional? Uh, and it was because of how the Trump administration uh, wrote the regulation and published it on, uh, on, uh, the, in the Federal Register. Now, the Court of Appeals case is very, re really, very relevant in this um, because the same reason that the Court of Appeals struck this down is the same reason this particular asylum regulation is going to be struck down. Um, the government argued that... Um, Hey, you know, the religious accommodation for the purple death. And, and the pre-pudge panel uh, said uh, that the uh, uh, HHS uh, failed to follow um, the rulemaking process to create that rule um, and that it, it clearly violated the, 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 the APA. The same thing is going to be held for the Trump administration uh, rule on asylum making uh, because they just took this out of whole cloth and made it, made it the, quote, law of the land without properly following the APA. Uh, the interim final rule process does not allow for rules that have never been through any notice and comment period to simply become the law. So what, what does this particular regulation do? Well, uh, in the context of uh, uh, the, uh, the law itself, uh, what the law is doing is amending uh, 8 CFR uh, 208. 
Um, so let's take – and uh, the preamble to this rule goes through a lot of – um, a lot of statistics, which taken at face value, uh, are true, but contextually um, uh, made to seem way worse than they are. Now, this rule is both a, uh, uh, a Department of Justice and DHS rule because asylum regulations are duplicated in 8 CFR 208 and 8 CFR 1208 uh, of, the, of the federal, federal regulation. Um, and so it, it, once you slog through uh, the preamble and the rationale and the history, all that, uh, you finally get to the actual regulations itself. Now, you have to be careful about regulations because uh, they, uh, they generally are short uh, as part of the process. So when we, uh, the first 49 pages of this publication, uh, are the ex explanation. So finally, we get to Section 208 of 8 CFR. So what they do is they're adding Section 208.13. Uh, uh, notwithstanding uh, the provisions of 208.15, any alien who enters, attempts to enter, or arrives in the U.S. across the southern land border on or after today, after transiting through at least one country outside the alien's country of citizenship nationality shall be found ineligible for asylum unless the alien demonstrates that he or she applied for protection from persecution in at least one country outside the nationality and that the alien received the final judgment denying asylum. The alien demonstrates the satisfied definition of a victim of severe trafficking and the only countries to which the alien translated about the United States were at the time of transit not parties to the UN Convention. So basically, um, unless you fly directly to the U.S. Uh, or land on a boat directly in the U.S., you have to go back to the other country. Uh, that violates our international treaties. Uh, and it, it, it's in direct contradiction to, to the statement that if it's not safe to apply in the country that you travel through, uh, that you are not required to do so. Uh, interestingly enough, um, they also add the following to a header. Credible fear, so that's the first thing they do. Right? They make that so if you pass through any country, you have to apply for asylum there. Now, this is particularly intended for Central Americans, uh, Guatemalans and El Salvadorans, you know, Salvadorans and Hondurans have to go through Guatemala to get to Mexico. So the uh, purported new agreement they were negotiating, but which is a little unclear whether it's going to happen because it was stayed by a Guatemalan court, is that they'd have to apply for asylum in Guatemala, a country so poorly, so poor that they are just completely incapable of actually giving asylum to anybody else. They can't even protect their own citizens. And Guatemalans would have to apply in Mexico um, for asylum. Again, a country that's ill-prepared to receive large numbers of refugees or asylum seekers. Uh, next, they want to change in Section 208.30 how credible fear determinations are made. And they say this, an alien will be found to have a credible fear of persecution if there is a significant possibility, taking into account the credibility of statements made by the alien, that the alien can establish eligibility for asylum. Um, and the alien will be found to have a credible fear of torture if he shows a significant possibility of for asylum. That is not the legal standard for asylum per the Supreme Court's decision in Elias Zacharias. 
Um, Elias Zacharias says, if there is a 10% chance that you will be persecuted in your home country uh, on, based upon one of the five grounds of, uh, of asylum, then you get to apply for asylum. You get, a, you get approved. A 10% possibility, not a significant possibility. They're trying to change the law on this uh, which is one of the many reasons why this will be struck down, because it's in direct contravention of what the Supreme Court has said on this issue, and in direct contravention to the actual statutes. Um, if an alien is found to have a negative credible fear determination, um, they get to apply uh, for a review of that in front of a judge. Uh, but if an alien fails to establish during an asylum officer interview a reasonable fear of persecution, the asylum will provide them with a written notice of decision subject to review by an immigration judge, and the judge will review the reasonable fear findings under the reasonable fear standard instead of the credible fear standard described in above. And so basically, it's making so the judges deny every credible fear claim. So what the asylum off, what the USCIS is doing is relying on asylum officers who have already complained in the courts about what they are being told to do. And I want to, I want to guess you're going to see a major revolt among asylum officers on this particular regulation. I wouldn't be surprised to see them join in the actual litigation, which I'm going to imagine is being filed today. So uh, that's it. Th th those are the changes. They make parallel changes. Uh, in uh, the two regs, the, the, the changes themselves are only about six pages long. They spend 50 pages, 49 pages, telling you why, trying to justify why these changes are both needed and legal. I would suspect uh, that these will be struck down, uh, at least in a preliminary injunction. I suggested within 72 hours of publication. So I'm going to guess by Friday uh, at 5 o'clock, uh, these particular uh, regulations will be on hold, will not be in place, because they, one, violate the APA rulemaking process, two, they're in direct contravention of the statute. Uh, you can't regulate a law. Uh, you, can't do, you can't do something in regulation that the law does not permit, and these are clearly extra statutory regulations. Um, and... Uh, you know, it, I'm glad the Trump administration has shown their cards in this. I'm glad it's come forward because it lets us know who these people really are, who the people that Trump has put into place and Trump himself really are. These are people that would turn around, turn back Holocaust victims. These are people that would turn away your mother if she would be raped and murdered in your home country because of one of the five protected grounds. That's who these people are really are. Uh, these They're not doing this to protect America. They're not. Uh, because America is not harmed by refugees and asylum seekers. We are, we are strengthened by asylum seekers, refugees, and every piece of data shows that. Uh, so when you combine the Trump administration's ineptness in immigration enforcements, and you combine that uh, with this type of extra statutory illegal rulemaking, you get an idea that the nativists and the eugenicists and the racists are currently running our country. The president's made completely clear who he really is. And it makes me harken back to that great quote 
from Batman. Uh, when Batman's former girlfriend, uh, uh, Bruce Wayne's former girlfriend, tells him, after he says, you know, I'm not really like this. And she said, Bruce, it's not who you are on the inside that matters, but it's your actions that define you. And the actions are defining this president. Thanks for listening this week to the Immigration Hour. Uh, it's great to have you as one of our listeners. Please uh, tweet out, retweet our, our, uh, our, uh, our show. We'd like to gather more listeners. Please put a, a review, if you can, on Stitcher or iTunes on our new uh, Immigration Hour sites on both of those since we had to create the new ones, the old guy I'm still fighting with to kind of combine these two sites together. But get those up there. Uh, we want to continue to broadcast the show now that we're in our 11th year. And let people know that immigrants and immigration lawyers have a voice. Until next week, this shows Charles Cook on the Immigration Hour.